Well, this morning we are going to be continuing in our study through the parables. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus this summer. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, which is on page 869 on the Bible there in your row. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab that and follow along with us. We'll also have it up on the screen here in just a minute uh, for you to be able to look through along with us. Expectations versus reality. Expectations versus reality, right? It works out great in life when those two things are in alignment, right? I'm expecting this, and boom, it's delivered. But as you and I both know, there are many times, many, many times in life where our expectations and reality are so far apart from one another that the results are almost hilarious. And if they're not hilarious, you have to make them hilarious or you're just going to be sad and cry, right? Like thinking something is going to turn out amazing and all you get is a dump truck of failure, right? That, that's real life many, many times. And there's many ways to illustrate this, but I thought of one that I felt was particularly applicable this week and particularly funny, and that's the cake fail. Are you familiar with cake fails? You've probably seen a few of these floating around the internet. I think we've got a few of these to share with you. Now, these are, these are <laughs> parents with skills that I don't possess posting on Pinterest these amazing cakes that they've made for their kids because, you know, your kid loves bluey, and so you're going to create a bluey cake for their birthday, and then you get into the kitchen and realize, <laughs> I possess no skill whatsoever. I, I can't do anything, and this one, last one, is probably my favorite one. Let's, uh, let's see that one. Oh, yeah, that's great. Happy birthday, child. Everyone is terrified and sad that they came to your birthday party, right? It's like, that's the point as a parent where you just go, hey, guess what? We're going to have ice cream to celebrate your birthday. Go to the store. Go get ice cream. You know, like, because you're not going to trot out that monstrosity, right? Right? So cake fails are, are comical, right? They're hilarious. And... The reality is there's, there's no real consequence other than maybe some hurt feelings and if you're the parent who made the cake, a little bit of hurt pride in a cake fail, right? Um, but that's an example of reality not lining up with expectations. Well, it's important for us to understand this, this dichotomy that we're all so familiar with because that's exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 10 this morning. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a parable that most of us are incredibly familiar with. We've probably heard it from a very young age. But there's a, there's a dynamic that's going on here surrounding the telling of this parable that's all about expectation versus reality. See, we're going to encounter a man who comes up to Jesus and he thinks his appraisal of himself is right on. He thinks he's got what he's supposed to be doing in the bag. And when Jesus starts telling you a story after you give an appraisal of yourself, it's usually not an indication that you were right. It's a resetting of expectations. It's a clarification on what is reality. And that's where we'll find ourselves this morning. And unlike cake, this is one of the most important resettings of reality that we could possibly have because this entire parable is going to help us understand that when it comes to the way that we respond to God and the way that we respond to others, there is so much gravity involved, so much gravity involved. So let's turn our attention there now and begin to look at this story 
In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, the parable of the good Samaritan. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him being Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered this correctly. Do this and you will live. So let's just set the stage here a, a little bit. Right? If you go through and, and you read the Gospels in, in your Bible, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're seeing right here is a relatively common thing in the Gospels. Right? Jesus is standing up in a synagogue which is kind of a, a local community center for the Jews. They're all over the place. You'd go there for recreation. You'd go there for teaching. You'd go there for meals. It was, it was a place in the community where you could go and, and be together with people and, and sit underneath the readings of the law and, and experience relationship with other uh, people in your community. And so this is something that's happening in Israel at this time all, all over the place, right? There are these synagogues, these meetings, people are getting together. And it was a common practice in Israel at this time that if you were a rabbi or a teacher and you were visiting the synagogue on the day that they were reading through the law, that you'd be invited, kind of like a guest preacher, they'd say, well, well, okay, rabbi, would you like to stand up and would you like to give us an interpretation of the law? Would you like to read this for us? And so you see this all throughout the gospels, Jesus getting up and saying things in the synagogue like, hey, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this, and people are amazed because he's teaching with authority in a way that no one else at the time was doing. And so he's standing up here in the synagogue, and, and he's teaching, and it's an opportunity for one of the other people who's there, an expert in the law, says a lawyer, and this isn't like Jim Adler, Texas hand, uh, Hammer kind of lawyer, right? Like this is a guy who's, who's an expert in the Old Testament law, he gets up and he asks Jesus a question about the things that he's teaching. And so that's where he jumps in and he says this. Hey, teacher, I have a question for you. Right? You're, you're up there giving your hot take. Here's a question for you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface, this is a good question, isn't it? You could argue that it's perhaps one of the most important questions that you and I could ever ask, right? Teacher, hey, what must I do so that when I die, I go to be in the presence of God forever? Right? That question hasn't gone away in, in 2,000 years, and it didn't start at that point. It's a question that we've been asking for the entirety of human existence. What is the requirement for me to live my life on this earth in such a way that when I die, I go to heaven to be with God forever? What's the recipe for that? What do I have to do? We'll see in just a minute in verse 29 here. This question is asked, but the lawyer isn't asking it because he's unaware of the answer. He's not unaware of the answer. He's not genuinely curious. He's trying to make a point about himself. And Jesus is going to correct his understanding. So the lawyer asks the question and Jesus responds in verse 26 and says, What's written in the law? How do you read it? 
And the lawyer responds and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right answer. Right answer. You got it. Congratulations. Do this and you will live. Now, this isn't, this isn't a foreign concept. There's no one in the room who's familiar with the Old Testament who's hearing this from Jesus and going, I never knew that. That would have been so helpful if someone would have told me that years ago. No, this is common understanding, right? The first of these, love the Lord your God, is the Shema. It's, it's what these, these Jewish men and women have grown up reciting their entire lives. They know these truths. Jesus has taught about this openly in many other places throughout his ministry, right? Go look at, we'll look at Matthew um, chapter 22, starting in verse 35. This is a question that he's getting asked all the time. So once again, he's in a very similar situation. He's teaching. A lawyer stands up and asks Jesus a question to test him and says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds and says this, what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and prophets. Right? And that wasn't shocking to anybody who heard it. They've heard this a million times before. And Jesus' point in explaining this is that every moral law, hear me on this, every moral law in the Old Testament Every moral requirement that God had for his people, for them to obey in order to live righteously, is perfectly fulfilled if you just do those two things. That's all you got to do. Forget memorizing 613 Old Testament laws. If you nail those two, you got it. That's the requirement. That's how you get eternal life. That's how you get into heaven. But there's a nuance to that, isn't there? That's all of the time. That's all of the time. Without exception, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Zero distractions. No greater joys or longings or pleasures or thoughts. All of us are hosed because football season is coming up and we're going, oh, yeah, well, mm. no breaks, no gimmies. Love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. There's no free passes for that one annoying person in your family or student in your class that you're like, I will love everybody as hard and fiercely as I can, but that one person does not get any love from me at all, at all. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. I cannot stand the sight of them, right? No free passes on that. It's perfection. That's the expectation, but if you can do that, great. If you can perfectly live out those two commands, then all the other laws that govern how you respond to God and how you respond to others are going to be honored. So you're good. So let's go back to our encounter here. The lawyer knew the right answer, didn't he? He responded. Jesus said, correct, right answer. But does he actually understand what it means? In other words, is he just reciting the right answers and saying the right religious things in order to convince Jesus and the other people around him that he's got it in the bag? Or does this lawyer live with a deep awareness of the weight of these commands and how outside of the mercy and grace of God 
It's impossible to live these out as God intended. We see the answer in verse 29. Look there. It says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you realize what an audacious claim this man is making? He completely bypasses the whole, am I actually loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? He's not worried about that. He's got that taken care of. What he wants to do is prove his case for how right he's been living by having an argument over definitions for who his neighbor is. And listen, if your plan this morning, if my plan this morning is to justify myself before God by proving my case for how I've held up my end of the equation, hey, I was good enough. I did enough. I did enough good. I went to church enough. I honored you enough. I loved everyone that I knew that I should love as hard as I should love them. And so here I am. I'm justifying myself before you. Look at what I've done. I'm sad to say that's going to be a bad day in court. So Jesus is going to respond to this man by giving him one of the most famous parables in all of Scripture to fill in the gaps in his understanding and a pray in ours as well, about what it really means to love your neighbor because this man was so blind to his own misunderstanding. So let's take a look at verse 30 and begin to unpack this parable. So Jesus replies to this man, verse 30, and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Let me pause there for just a second. I've got a few pictures to show you of a number of the different roads and paths that exist between Jerusalem and Jericho. There's three of them. So that's what it looks like if you're looking toward Jericho from Jerusalem. And then we've got some pictures here of some of the roads. Do you see that little road winding along the path there? That's the uh, Dead Sea that you see off in the distance. There's another one. You can see him skirting around the edges of the, the cliffs and the valleys. Many of these paths and roads, if you were to go to Israel today, are the exact same ones that have been used for 2,000 years. And the reason why is there are very few ways to get from Jerusalem to Jericho. And people have found them and built paths on them. And that's pretty much how you get there, right? Why is that? Why is that? Because Jericho... Like you saw in the picture, you saw the Dead Sea in there. Jericho is about two miles from the edge of the Dead Sea, which, sorry, students, school starts next month, geography lesson, right? Lowest land elevation on earth. It's about 1,400 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is in the Judean mountains at an elevation of about 2,500 feet above sea level. So do some quick math, roughly 4,000 feet in elevation change in 11 miles. That's about from where we are to the south tip of Lake Conroe, just to give you some perspective. And that distance is not only marked by this incredible elevation change, but this landscape change from mountains and trees and gardens to desert valleys and canyons. The, the, the paths along the way were, were, were called in, in Aramaic the death road because that's, that's what you experienced along the way. And so 
this, this story, this parable that Jesus is telling, even though it's not a true story, the things that he's describing here are absolutely applicable and true to life, right? Because of the terrain that you just saw, this was an area in Jerusalem where um, robbers and, and highwaymen loved to hang out. They would hide in caves and crevices and they would jump out and they would raid people who were on their journey and they would steal the things that they had and they would beat them up and you know, it was just, it was a dangerous place to try to travel through. And so the fact that he's telling this story about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, I mean, that was really down, but that this scenario happened would have been unbelievably true for everyone who's listening. They would have, have probably known someone who either got robbed or beat up on the road to Jericho or knew someone who knew someone who got robbed and beat up on the road to Jericho. And so he's painting this vivid picture about what happens. And this man in this parable is on his way down and and what happens? He falls among robbers. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him. And this isn't just a lightweight you know, messing with his hair and calling him names and then, you know, running off after kicking him in the shin. I mean, literally says they leave him half dead. It, it, literally, he's on his way to death. And so enter the first character to this story. Look at verse 20, 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What do you expect the priest to do in this scenario? What do you expect the priest to do in this scenario? Priest is religious elite, y'all. This is the dude. This is the guy whose job is to be at the temple, interceding on behalf of the people of Israel before God, offering sacrifices, offering prayer, conducting worship. If you if you saw his, his business card. It would say, dude, priest, and the description underneath it would be frontline worker in the industries of mercy, care, and compassion. If there was anybody in Israel who understood the heart of God for his people, it was the priest. If there was anyone you should be able to count on to look at someone in plight and to recognize that they can intercede on their behalf before God. It's the priest. That's what you expect him to do. At very minimum, you expect him to go over and like poke him with a stick. Like, are you, are you dead? Are you breathing? I guess you do this now with the, the wrist. Like, what, are you, what is going on with this guy, right? At very minimum, you expect him to go over and be like, hey, which way? right? Like, you expect something. But he passes by on the other side. You remember those pictures from earlier? There are places on that path where, and we don't know where it was, but passing by on the other side is literally just stepping over the person. This isn't a multi-lane highway. This isn't I-10, okay? This, This isn't our woodlands, nicely groomed, Five people wide sidewalks where everyone can play and you don't get your shins bashed by some kid riding his bike. Like this is real, difficult, mountainous terrain. He goes on his way. Enter character two to the story, verse 32. It says, likewise, a Levite, 
when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So who's a Levite? Levites um, are kind of like the water boys on the football team. It's maybe best way to put it. Uh, they're, they're at the game. They're helping the players, but they're not on the field, unless you're Adam Sandler, right? Their entire job, if you're a Levite, is to serve. That's what you do. You wake up in the morning and you go, I'm going to the temple so that I can serve the people who are there, so that I can serve the priests who are there, so that I can tend to the needs of the temple facility. My entire life is to be a religious and righteous person who is going out of his way to serve others and minister to their needs so that they can come into the presence of God in the temple and worship. Surely a religious and righteous man whose life was dedicated to these things would stop in this scenario, right? Wrong. Instead of rendering aid, he too passes by on the other side. And then the final character shows up. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. Let's stop there. Now if you're sitting there and you're listening to Jesus teach, and he says Samaritan, the utterance of that word is going to immediately elicit this kind of, wait, what did you just say? From everybody who's there. And not like in a curious way. Like, I'll just pull in ice cream because we already talked about it. Like, if you say ice cream and your kids are in the room, all of a sudden they're just like, did you say ice cream? I did. Can we have some now? You may not, right? I mean, it's not that kind of curiosity. It's like what would happen if you walked into a political rally wearing a T-shirt for the other candidate? Or if you went to an Aggie game rooting for the Longhorns? Like, no one's going to look at you and be like, good for you. Yes, right? There is animosity if you're a Jew living in this day toward the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. If you know your Old Testament history, the, the kingdom of Israel split in half, and the northern kingdom went up to Samaria, and they built their own temple, and they worshiped false gods, and they had evil kings who led the people away from the worship of the one true God. Eventually, as punishment God brings in foreign nations to run through the land and take these people into exile. Many of the Jews who lived there and were not taken into exile intermarried with and commingled with the, the foreigners who came in and abandoned the worship of God and married with foreigners, which was prohibited in the law. And many who came back from exile jumped in on the party. And so you've got a bunch of, of half-breeds who are completely forsaking what they've known to be true from what God says in his word. And as a result, Jews, faithful Jews, detested them, right? You see throughout scripture that, that, that oftentimes Jews, when they were trying to travel from one side of the country to the other, would go around Samaria, even though it was totally inconvenient to do so, just so they didn't have to walk in the same places where these people lived, 
You see Jesus going in the book of John to meet a woman in Samaria, and the disciples are like, what are we doing and going into Samaria? This is crazy. Like, it blows their minds. Because if you're a Jew, especially a Jewish man, you just don't interact with the Samaritans. In fact, historians will say, and I promise, if you have someone in your life that you don't like, this is like next level hatred right here. It was a common prayer for Jewish men at the time to say, Lord God, please ignore the prayers of the Samaritans. Can you imagine doing that even to your worst enemy? Asking God in faith to ignore someone and the heartfelt needs that they're bringing before him? I mean, that's, that's where these people are at. So a Samaritan, that's the reaction, that's the response that's being experienced in the hearts of the people who are listening to this, right? But a Samaritan, what happens next? The people you expect the man to be helped by, the priest, the Levite, both Jewish men, both living religious lives in service to others, they do nothing. And here's the mortal enemy of the man who was beaten. And he shows up and he does what? Verse 33. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Please note that before he does anything, his heart was moved for this person. He saw someone who was in need and went, this isn't okay. I'm going to do something about it. I can do something about it. So I'm going to. And he goes over to him. Verse 34. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Right? So the Samaritan looks upon the situation of this man and he's moved with compassion. He sees the plight of this man left half dead and he's motivated to enter into his struggle, to, to step into his mess and to be generous, to care for him. There's no one there pressuring him to do it. There's no merit badge for this. It's driven by a deep conviction to show mercy and kindness to a person who's in need. And so he goes over to the man and he renders aid and Keep in mind, people are not carrying first aid kits around back then. It's not like, well, I'm going on a long journey. I better make sure that I pack two AA batteries and a big jug of water and a first aid kit in case I get robbed on the way. Like, they didn't do that. You have what you need in order to make it from point A to point B. Binding wounds typically would have meant you're ripping your own clothing to make bandages to cover up wounds. But we know that this guy was stripped and left for dead. So literally the imagery here is is the Samaritan is ripping the clothes off of his back to bind up this man's wounds. He's taking oil and wine, which are things that he would have carried with him to prepare food for himself so that he could be sustained and have something to eat or to light his way on his path. And he's going, I need these things for my own sustenance, but I'm going to pour, and literally the pouring, the, the imagery used in the text here is head to toe covering of this man with oil and wine, which were antiseptic and healing things as well. And this man puts this, this this Samaritan puts this man on his own animal and secures him and then begins to walk down the path. And he doesn't know if the band of robbers that 
got this guy is waiting around the next corner or not, and he's put himself in a vulnerable position. Has he not? He's on foot. He's got a burden he's now responsible for, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. So let's keep reading. He's not done. Verse 35. The next day he took out, he set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay back when I come. So the Samaritan takes the man to an inn and cares for him. How long? All night long. How do we know that? Beginning of verse 36. The next day, he gets up. He's still at the inn. He's talking to the innkeeper. So he took care of this man all night long and says, hey, I'm going away. I need you to take care of this guy, and you've got a blank check. Whatever he needs, I'll take care of it when I come back. So he gives him two denarii and gets on his way. You want to know what historians say the average rate for room at an inn was around this time? One thirty-second of a denarii. So he basically walked up to the innkeeper and said, he's good for two months. Just make sure he leaves here well. Whatever you've got to do to do that, it's on me. I'm good for it. Right? As, as you would be if you're in a hotel today and you go up to the front desk and be like, hey, here's six grand. I've got a person who's staying up in that room. Of course, they'd probably call the cops and be like, what is going on, right? Um, I got it. I got it, okay? I'm on it. You'd go, you know, if he needs something from the, uh, the mini bar, just let him take it, okay? I just gave you six grand, right? This is lavish. This is totally unnecessary. This is extravagant love and care for this man. You would even go so far as to say it's insanity for someone you've never met who would be predisposed to hate you and as far as we can tell in this parable, never even had the opportunity to say thank you in return. And so Jesus turns back around to the lawyer after all of this, verse 36, and he says, hey lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And with a hard heart that still, still wouldn't utter the name Samaritan, the lawyer responds and says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So what is Jesus trying to illustrate in this parable? What is Jesus trying to, to get at here, why, why tell this? Why give this as an example to the lawyer? Do you recall what the original question was that was asked? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus helps him understand, hey, I know you think that you've got the whole loving God thing in the bag, but let me show you what it actually looks like to fulfill the Lord's command to love your neighbor as yourself. And he paints this beautiful picture of unbelievable love from one person to another without fail, without condition, without boundary that should have caused this man to say, if that's required of me, 
If behavior like that is required of me to fulfill the command to love my neighbor as myself, not only have I not loved the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, there's no way that I can love other people like that. I'm too biased. I'm too selfish. I'm way too focused on my own needs. I can't do that. Even on my best day, I can't do that. What hope then is there for me, teacher? Because I can't do what you're telling me I have to do. That's too much. And that should be our reaction as well. And there standing in front of this lawyer was the only one who could offer him a path forward from that brokenness. And he missed it. And church, I don't want you to miss that this morning. Students who are in here, I don't want you to miss that either. That if, if eternal life is dependent on our ability to perform well enough or do good enough or love people selflessly enough or honor God perfectly enough, then we're no better off than this lawyer. We can't do it. There is one who did, who did love God perfectly with all his heart and soul and mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Who was the best neighbor to us? Who gave without boundary and without limit solely for our good, even though it cost him everything? And he offers his perfect obedience and righteousness to us by placing our faith and trust in his work on our behalf. And that's Jesus. Don't miss that this morning, even as we try to get this truth about, okay, what does it really mean to love my neighbor down? And we're going to go there and we're going to talk about that this morning as, as the, the way to wrap all this up. But, but don't miss that this morning. That should have been the response of the lawyers just to say, Lord, I can't do this. Surely there has to be a way. And Jesus would have looked at him and said, leave everything that you have and follow me. And that same invitation is the same invitation Jesus is still giving to you and I today, 2,000 years later. But that's not all, right? Jesus also told this parable because there was a radical redefinition of neighbor that needed to be lodged in this man's brain and in the brains of, of the hearers who were there because the prevalent thinking in Jesus' day, if you're a Jew, is that my neighbor is the Jew. I'm a Jew. They're a Jew. That's my neighbor. They could even boil it down even further and say, I'm a Jewish man, so my neighbor is a Jewish man. I'm a Jewish man who's a Pharisee. My neighbor is another Pharisee. I mean, they could get really really granular. And sadly, I don't know that we've changed a whole lot as people in, in two millennia, have we? I look at the culture around us today and the prevailing idea for many is that, look, if someone doesn't look like you, vote like you, believe like you, act like you, value the same things that you do, school their kids the same way that you do, wear the same clothes as you do, whatever it is, they're a threat. They're the enemy. They're the other side. They're doing it wrong. They're one of those other people that you don't have to deal with. Because if you did, you'd probably just get into an argument with them. And Jesus, in this parable, says, no, your neighbor even includes the people you are most predisposed to hate. 
the neighbor that you're called to love is anyone made in the image of God, even someone that you would never choose to associate with and have absolutely nothing in common with other than the breath in your lungs and the zip code that you live in. And that's hard for us, isn't it? Full transparency, I'm not great at this. I'm really not. Because if you're anything like me, I really like my comfort zone. That's why it's called the comfort zone. I'm very comfortable there. The older I get, the more my comfort zone expands. I like to be comfortable. I don't like being in awkward situations. I don't like putting forth more effort in areas of life than I currently have to put forth effort in because it feels like a lot, right? My weeks are full, my days are long. I'm not really looking to up the ante. I like to associate with people that I see mutual benefit from. I like you, you like me, let's be friends. Some of us have our little bubble of people who are very content to go about our lives existing around others, but not really engaging beyond the couple of people that we connect with. Jesus shows up, and I need to hear this this morning. He says, open your eyes to see the people around you. Your call and your mission to love your neighbor as yourself is so much bigger than you and I tend to want to view it, not just in scope, but in application, right? You see in this parable a self-sacrificing of oneself for the benefit of another. It's over the top. It's limitless. It doesn't have boundaries. And I think that's the point. Because the call isn't to love your neighbor marginally better than most other people in the world would, but to love your neighbor as yourself. And look, we could spend an entire Sunday going down a psychological path here about self-care and self-love and what's involved in that, but suffice it to say, even if you're the most selfless person in the room, the person that you and I love and care for more than anyone else is almost always the person that you see in the mirror. So let's bring this down to earth, right? Because what I don't think Jesus is teaching here is that we need to leave here and be like, I'm going to find everybody who has a need and take care of it, whether they want it or not. I don't need money in my bank account. I don't need food in my house. Let's do this thing, right? I don't think that's what he's teaching here. I don't think Jesus is saying that anytime you come upon an absolute stranger or enemy or even a friend, that you must go out of your way to limitlessly care for their needs and share whatever you have. Okay? I'm trying to get you off the hook, just perspective here, right? What I think he's trying to show us here in this parable about loving your neighbor is that your heart disposition, because remember the, the Samaritan saw the man and his heart was filled with compassion before he did anything else. He did what he was capable of doing in that moment. But the first thing that he did was have a heart that looked at the man and felt compassion. Jesus is showing us that the heart disposition that we have toward others is one of abundant generosity and willingness to do things that manifest the love of God that often defy convention or expectation. So what does that look like practically? It looks like things that I know many of you are doing or have done or make a habit of doing. You're out mowing your lawn on Saturday 
your 80-year-old neighbor next door can't keep their yard anymore because they're old and don't have the ability to hire a lawn service and they're not out pushing it. So what are you doing? You're mowing their yard too. And then you're asking if there's anything that you can do to serve them and take care of them. Can I bring you dinner tonight? Would you like to come over and join us? Oh, you're so kind to do it. God's been so kind to me. This is the least that I could do to show you an ounce of the kindness that I've been shown by my heavenly father. Hearing about a coworker who's struggling financially, giving them a gift card for 200 bucks worth of groceries, bringing someone a meal who's sick, sitting with people whose marriages are in a tough spot to listen and pray and then saying, hey, you drop your kids off anytime you want to. I want you to go to counseling. I want you to get help. And I don't want you to worry about what to do with the kids. Y'all take as much time as you need, okay? We're here for you. We got you. Finding people who are lonely, inviting them into your life so they can be known by others. Devoting your time to delivering meals to kids. Serving women with unplanned pregnancies who need support. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on with things that people in this church People outside of this church that you know are doing to be agents of mercy, agents of truth, of the gospel, agents of the heart of Christ toward a hurting and a broken world around us. And look, you don't have to be an adult to do this. Students who are in here, you go to school with kids whose home lives are a mess. And they're showing up and they're barely keeping it together. You got awkward kids. You got kids who are loners. Who steps into their life in your world and says, hey, look, you don't have to be alone. You don't have to walk through this thing that you're going through by yourself, okay? I don't know a lot, but I know what Jesus has done for me. I just want to be a friend to you. I would hate to be in the spot that you're in. But you don't have to stay there. Does that come as a sacrifice? Absolutely. Is it convenient? Most of the time, it's not. Is there credit and recognition in it? Surely not. Not most of the time, and if that's what you're doing it for, the heart motivation behind it is already out of sync. But it's all good. And it's a way to communicate to the world around us that there is one who's been neighborly to us, who's loved us more than we love ourselves, and given of greater personal sacrifice than you and I ever will to love us, accept us, and save us from the depths that we were in. He invites us to do the same to those we encounter and serve. So how do you live into that this week? Let me give you some principles I think we can pull from this parable, and then we're going to wrap it up this morning. Number one, open your eyes to see the people who are right in front of you, right? All three people in this parable literally are coming across a man, and it says they saw him. FYI, you don't have to leave this building and go, where are their needs? Surely they're hidden around here somewhere. They're in this room with you. They're in your family. They're in your neighborhood. They're in your workplace. They're next door to you. There are no shortage of opportunities to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you and to love your neighbor as yourself if you will just open your eyes to see what's right in front of you. Living this kind of bold, generous love for others isn't going to require you to go on a hunt. 
It is going to require you to be willing to get to know others, be vulnerable enough to be known yourself, and then to be faithful to step into areas where you can serve and help with others. The second principle you can pull from this is don't be afraid of messy people. This dude was a mess. The dude who got robbed on the road to Jericho was a mess. His mess happened to be physiological, bleeding and beat up and naked, right? Remember your life before you knew Jesus? If you're anything like me, I was a total mess. Even on my best days with Jesus, I'm still kind of a mess. Don't laugh, Sheridan. That's my wife. She knows how much of a mess I am, right? Don't be afraid of messy people. It may take time and getting your hands dirty to love people well. Thank God that someone was willing in my life to get their hands dirty because I was a mess. Don't be afraid of messy people. Number three, recognize that relationship is a part oftentimes of loving people well. Sure, you can show the love of Christ to someone in the moment. That's what we saw here with the, the Good Samaritan. Right? In the moment, he showed love, and then he was on his way. But there was also a relationship established, right? Hey, for the next two months, I'm going to be mindful of this guy, and in two months, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to have a full accounting of everything that was done for him, and I own that. I own that. There's a longevity to caring for this man by the Samaritan, and often the efforts that we make to live out this neighborly life of loving our neighbors as ourselves takes time. It takes time to build relationships and to know people beyond just our friends or the people we go to church with. Finally, the fourth, understand this, that the first step for you and I is the exact same as the lawyer, who upon finally understanding what this meant was told, go and do likewise. You don't need permission to do this. You don't need nudging to love others as yourself with this kind of selfless love. We are called as we are going to be living generously and abundantly toward others. Would you practice that this week with me? Would you step into that this week? Would people begin to look at the, the men and women who come to Christ Community Church and say, man, I've never seen the love of God on display like I have through the people who go to that church. I just haven't. If that's what following Jesus is about, I'm there for it. I'm there for it. It's not just religious talk. These guys love people the way that I think Jesus would have loved people if he was still here. That's a huge mission. Will we make mistakes? Absolutely. But is it worth doing? Of course. Of course. Let's step into that together this week. Would you join me in prayer?